founder of Kmart, I think yeah. I heard, yeah. Um, and then it went into rack and ruin, all overgrown, raw sewage in the basement. The whole thing was just a total mess. And this guy, Paddy, uh, bought it. And he, over five years, it was like the Fight Club house for a while. And he just kind of redesigned it, redid it. And now it's like a space for communal living. They do events. Uh, there's about, um, you know, five or six people living here at the moment. Um, and it's just, I, I really would want to give you a tour. First of all, meet my friend. Um, this is... Um, uh, Ali. Ali. Ali, yes. Oh, no, no, I'm showing him the cat. Oh. So, this is, oh, not Ellie, Ali. I'm just saying Ellie, Ali. Ali. Well, no, Ali, I'm going to show you in a second. She Sorry. thought, it's terrible, she thought I was saying hi to her when I was saying, what's the cat's name? I don't know. This is an embalmed, embalmed pet. Uh, and this is Charlie. Charlie does the Fable podcast. Hey, guys. And this is Ali. Hello. Hello. They are Detroit people, born and bred, I think, in Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where my events over the next couple of days are being held. Pints and Parables is downstairs in the basement. Um, and then my building on fire uh, is on Saturday. If you're coming to this, you're going to see this place firsthand. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, no, the cat isn't alive. Melanie, I'm afraid. It's absolutely, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to touch her, but she feels so beautiful. Um, okay, so I, of course I'm not just here to show off that I'm in Detroit um, and that I'm in this really, really cool kind of space. Uh, I, I also need to say something uh, of interest to you. So I thought I would talk about something that I'm going to explore um, while I'm in Detroit. And it is um, Christianity and the real. And I want to look at the difference between mythology and the real. So basically, my argument is that Christianity is real. The crucifixion is real. But I mean that in a philosophical sense. Um, and so I want to make it a distinction. So a myth is basically a story that tells you why you're here, where you're going, what it's all about. Uh, a myth covers over the cracks of our lack of understanding. It gives us a real sense of our place in the world and in our culture and society. It's a wisdom tradition. You know, myths tell us, you know, how to live well and what will happen if we don't. Um, so that's a type of mythology. A myth is that grand narrative that, that gives us a sense of place and purpose and meaning. Now, in philosophical terms, the word real means... Um, that which disrupts and disturbs the myth of our lives. Uh, it is that which breaks into and reveals the cracks and the broken spaces in our stories and narratives. So whenever I talk about the crucifixion as real, what I mean is there is a tendency for for uh, some uh, traditional religious interpretations to try and say that the crucifixion is meaningful, that it means something, that it gives us... Oh, I, I'm hearing myself uh, on someone else's phone in the room. That's very good. Don't worry about it. We can always edit that out. Nobody will notice. <laughs> we can't edit it out. Um, the, um, the uh, what was I saying? Oh, yes, the real. The real is is that which disrupts, disturbs, breaks open our understandings. So to say the crucifixion is real 
is in contrast to those people who say, oh, the crucifixion gives us a sense of meaning and purpose. It tells us why we're here. It tells us the great salvation story. Um, I, I try to argue that actually it disrupts and disturbs everything we think of as salvation and meaning and hope. The idea of God dying, the idea of the strongest thing in the universe being reduced to the weakest, uh, the idea of this divine being um, actually being naked on a cross outside the city, cursed by God, um, outside of the political system. Um, this is a complete anathema. This is something that completely disturbs all of our understanding of what, of, of what life is about. And so, in a sense, um, Christianity in, is an experience of what Lacan calls the real, of the rupturing of our lives and the opening up of new possibilities. Um, something uh, that might help to understand this is what's called the mirror phase uh, in development. The mirror phase is the point when a child looks in a mirror and they're fascinated by what they see. They're, they look in the mirror and they're like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And anyone who's a parent will, will likely have seen this in their children. But there's an additional element of the mirror phase that Lacan noticed. Uh, my friend Tad Delay uh, talks about this. Uh, Lacan noticed that the child doesn't just look in the mirror to see themselves. They then look over their shoulders to see if the parent is acknowledging it. Okay, So you have the mirror where they're looking at themselves and then they look over their shoulder to see if their mother or their father or some adult is going, yes, that's you. Oh, look at you. You're beautiful. You're great. You're wonderful. Right? Now, this means that, in a sense, the child has to have the image ratified by some other. They see themselves in the mirror, and then some authority figure ratifies and legitimates that by saying, yes, and look how strong you are, look how brave you are, look how beautiful you are. And we create this mirror image of ourselves, it's like an idealized image. It's a perfected image of us. Inside we feel broken, we feel scared, we feel hunger, all of these emotions. But that mirror image is strong and beautiful and good, and we identify with it. Now, interestingly for Lacan, this is not a phase that just happens between 6 and 18 months. It actually stays with us throughout our lives. And actually, technology has got to a point where we see the mirror phase happening in everyday life. Uh, the selfie, you know, our technology has got to a point where we're able to have mobile technology that allows us to take pictures of ourselves easily. And you see the mirror phase, what is a selfie? Well, a selfie is always for another. In other words, it's not enough to take a selfie. The selfie has to be ratified and legitimated by another. That's why you put it on social media or text it to somebody you love so that you get the likes, so that you get someone to say, oh, look, you know, you look beautiful, or you look cool, or look where you're, you are, like, you know, you're an adventurous person, um, that kind of thing. And of course, we laugh about this. We say, oh, look, at people are taking selfies and then showing them off. But it would be much weirder if people took selfies and didn't show them off. That would be truly disturbing. Like, that would be like psychotic behavior. That would be like, that person's a, a psycho. You know, imagine like they're taking hundreds of selfies and then they just keep them in a little, uh, little portfolio and just look at them themselves, right? It actually is very normal for us to want another and other to legitimate our idealized image of ourselves. 
Now, this helps us understand what idolatry is. Idolatry, I argue, I would say, is where some other, some divine other, where God is the authority that legitimates our idealized image of ourselves, the idealized image of our society, the idealized image of our country, right? So in other words, we don't just have an idealized image of our society, of our culture, of our politics. We need that ratified by some external authority. And that external authority we call God. But actually, that is the very thing that we need to break. Uh, kind of I, what I would argue is that in a sense, true Christianity, like in its, its, its subversive core, in the subversive core of the text, you see a rejection of God as what's called the guarantor of meaning, what Descartes called the guarantor of meaning. The God that guarantees our, our sense of self and our sense of right and wrong. But rather, the prophet is the one that is a, it offers like an explosion, um, an explosive into our mirror images, our idealized images, breaks them open, shows their fractures, shows their problems, draws out their limitations. Um, and that's, that's the real. That's the real is the rupturing. Um, and, and in a sense, it's not even that, that we explode the mythology. The mythologies are already riven with problems. And it's just we need to become kind of conscious of them in various ways. Paul Tillich calls it the difference between an unbroken myth and a broken myth. Um, so an unbroken myth is when you believe everything that you've been told, the tradition that's been handed down to you, uh, the tradition that you've been given. By the way, this is what Heidegger means when he says your past is present and your past is future. Because the past of your whole um, society lies in front of you. When you're born, you're born into it and it's given to you by your family and by educational structures, legal structures. So in, in a strange sense, your past is present and your past is, is, is something that is in front of you so that when you're born, you're born into it. So an unbroken myth is when you take all of that and you just believe it's right. You just think it's right. And there's no problems with that. For Tillich, he says that's completely natural. That's not for him fundamentalism or anything like that. The problem is when we're challenged, as we inevitably are in our worldviews, what do we do? Do we embrace that challenge? And that's what Tillich calls a broken myth, which means that we understand that our stories are full of cracks, fissures. They're, they're not whole, they're not complete. But yet we still realize that we need to live with traditions and narratives. So we live with broken ones. Or do we repress what we've heard, pretend that there's no problems and, and, and push down all the questioning? And that's the point where Tillich talks about fundamentalism in the sense of it's, it's not a certainty. It's actually an uncertainty that is not able to admit of its uncertainty. So it's very different. We think of fundamentalism as, as, as certainty. But in a sense, Tillich's sense is no, no, no. Fundamentalism is and actually a radical uncertainty and unknowing that is not able to accept and look at and acknowledge that unknowing. So it's repressed and then pushed out into kind of other things and into violence. Um, and, and so in a sense for Tillich, what I'm calling the real, Tillich calls the broken myth. 
uh, and what I call in the symbolic, the symbolic idealized mirror image, uh, till it calls the unbroken myth. And uh, uh, for me, the crucifixion ultimately is a type of a projectile that smashes into those unbroken myths and breaks them apart, but so that new ideas can birth, so that we can uh, new worlds become possible and new ways of understanding can come into existence. This is something that's very terrifying to us, but if we learn to accept it, it's actually exhilarating. Okay, I've waffled on long enough. Let's see if there's any questions, thoughts. Um, I'll also ask uh, uh, Charlie and... Uh, uh, Ellie, Ellie or Ali? Ellie. Ellie. I keep. I just don't know why she's Ellie or Ali, but Ellie. Um, if they've got any questions, is there anything you've any thoughts you have? Questions, comments? Oh, I think the, the fundamentalists oftentimes, because they're they they want certainty so bad that oftentimes what they do is they ostracize a lot of people because they're so uncertain that they can't come to terms with the fact that somebody might be able to embrace that uncertainty a lot of times. So. It, it furthers the conflict in them and it furthers, you know, that uncertainty that they have to hold on to. So it's almost like a, the reaction is the digging in the heels and the reaction is digging the boots in the ground and saying, I'm going to plant myself here. So you yeah. even fall further behind the divine in that aspect. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the truth is, like, there's something of this in, in almost all of us. Um, like, the, the form of fundamentalism that Tillich is talking about here and that I'm talking about is... It's the same thing whenever somebody challenges you that you were an asshole to your mum and you're like, no, I wasn't. I, she's a nightmare. You wouldn't believe what she's like. I was totally within my rights to do that, right? When deep down, you know you were being a bit of an asshole, right? But that, that reaction actually betrays a defensiveness and the defensiveness betrays a sense in which you, deep down you know maybe you did something wrong. And so that's, that's the psychological mechanism we're talking about. And it's a psychological mechanism that, of course, we like to say, oh, it's those people out there do it, but I don't. But actually, it's kind of a universal uh, mechanism um, for, you know, the sense of like we all know when we're challenged in a, in a negative way about something, we can, our defenses come up and we pretend that we're completely innocent. We pretend that we're completely good. And th this is called in developmental terms, the beautiful soul. The beautiful soul is, um, it sounds like a really nice thing. They say, oh, you're you have a beautiful soul. But for uh, Hegel, a uh, beautiful soul was the point where you cannot have any darkness within yourself. So you have to push it out. Um, it's a developmental phase where like when children have a monster under the bed, right? Uh, in a sense, of course, the monster is not under the bed. The monster is within them. But you can't look at your pain, your darkness, your fears, so you put it under the bed in a monster. And you only get rid of the monster under the bed when you realize that the monster is within you and you make certain peace with that monster. So this mechanism that we're talking about, we're probably all guilty of it. Um, you know, fundamentalism is, is, is within us. Uh, let's see. Lots of people saying hello, good morning. <laughs> There's Moira from Castlereagh in Northern Ireland. That's brilliant. Um, I'm going to be home soon. Uh, any questions or thoughts here? Will you be doing any events similar to the one on the 12th next month in the near future? 
Um, yeah, I, next year I want to do lots of building on fire events all across America. Um, but I'm very disorganized um, and so probably will fail dramatically, so don't hold me to that. But that is my plan. Um, uh, William says, isn't too much uncertainty unhealthy? <clears throat> yeah, now that actually in and of itself probably deserves, you know, obviously a whole other Facebook Live and a lot more. But yeah, too much uncertainty. This is where we have to parse out our, our terms. Um, yeah, the thing, the thing, I, the way that Tillich talks about this is, he says actually, um, it's like some people think, okay, you can be uncertain about you know ten percent of things for say, say for obviously, but ninety percent of things we need to be pretty certain about. <clears throat> and then some people say, well, no, ninety percent we can be uncertain about, but there's ten percent that we need to be certain about. There's always some element because the fear is, of course, relativism. What if we we were uncertain about everything? Surely we would fall into a form of nihilism or relativism. We wouldn't be able to do anything. But, but Tillich says, well, what if we bite the bullet and we say that actually there's uncertainty um, right through everything? <clears throat> and by the way, some people don't experience uncertainty. Um, psycho psychotics don't experience uncertainty. Neurotics experience a lot of uncertainty. Um, but... but, but uh, you know, what if uncertainty is, in a sense, riven through everything we have? Does that reduce us to, you know, doing nothing? Well, Tillich says, well, not if it's if it's put alongside something else, which is one thing that is indubitable, and that is the subjectivity of the other. The other is not an object to use and abuse as we want. That the other has a subjectivity that calls out to us, do not use me, do not abuse me. Now, in this way, some Tillich would say, you combine an uncertainty, as in, you know, we don't know what love looks like in any given time. There's always fear and trembling in everything we do. We can't sit back and say, oh, I know exactly what I need to do. But in love, there's a certainty that, that the object is worthy of your life and your death. And when you combine these, what that means is you do act. You act in the best possible sense you can, but you can never get rid of the uncertainty. You can never get rid of that sense of maybe I'm doing things wrong, but, but the love causes you to act. <clears throat> so from an existential point of view, you want to both experience uncertainty and unknowing and the infinite call of the subjective other. Uh, and, and, and that's for me what, what the liturgical space is about. It's about um, bringing, doing both of those, about helping us take responsibility for our lives in the midst of unknowing and doubt, and helping us hear the subjective call of the other, sub, um, sensitizing us to our neighbor's needs uh, and, and embracing that. So that's kind of an existential response um, to that question. Uh, let's see. Okay, some just practical questions. James asking when I'll be when will I be in Nashville again? I love Nashville. I have to get back there at some point, but no plans yet. You have to invite me, James. Yeah, that's the way it works. Um, okay, I am going to leave you all now. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to go to Shinola. There's a really cool shop that I just discovered recently that you'll probably all know about, Shinola in Detroit. And they sell beautiful watches and, 
very expensive stuff so i'm just going to look sadly no purchasing but um now i'm in detroit i want to see it for myself and uh if you're going to be in detroit tonight at my pints and parables i will see you soon uh, otherwise uh, i'll try and do another facebook live next week okay take care bye